you happy warriors to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And uh, I call you happy warriors because this show is focused not just on your bodies, but on your souls as well. And every single listener to this show, if you are a regular listener to this show, I can assure you that you have a young and vibrant soul. What is more, we're all happy warriors because in order to live productively, you've got to fight every single day. You've got to fight against the forces of entropy, if nothing else. You fight to maintain your possessions. After all, Everything is trying to rust. Everything needs paint. Everything needs constant repairing. That's a fight. You fight to build and maintain your family. Yeah, every single day there's a challenge there. You fight to maintain your business or your profession or your career because there are challenges to that all the time. Life is a fight. And that's a good thing because to stop fighting, to stop seeking and to stop striving Well, that's to die. And I call you not just warriors, but happy warriors. Because to throw yourself into the fight for eight or ten hours a day, six days a week, is one thing. But to do all that consistently with a debonair smile on your face and a jaunty pace to your stride, to do all that while generating an irrepressible surge of happiness welling up in your soul, well, that means that you are spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming. It means you're devoted to your faith, your family, your finances, and your friends, knowing that ultimately you can triumph over those who both intentionally and unknowingly promote a dark abyss of satanic secular socialism and all the many evil social pathologies it generates. When I reveal how the world really works, it's in the hope that you will help defeat those pathetic creatures of modern secular fundamentalism, those orphans in history who possess neither Judeo-Christian fortitude nor even pagan ferocity, which would almost be welcome, those hideous hermaphrodites and fanatical feminists running our media, education, government bureaucracies, who possess neither the strength of men nor the intuitive wisdom of women. Each of you happy warriors, gentle giant, humble heart, ready to make a difference. In general, your rabbi prefers not to deal with news items on this show. Uh, My approach is to do my utmost best to provide you with the timeless truths and permanent principles, and then to confidently sit back knowing that you will be able to apply them to contemporary events and make sense of the news headlines. And that way, we're able to cover far more than were I to pick out a few news items to discuss. And in any event, I decided that there are more than enough shows out there that do deal on a regular basis with current events. An exception to this would be the uh, huge fire that engulfed the roof and other portions of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris during this past week. I don't consider it a uh, contemporary news item because it is the severest damage that that cathedral has sustained in many hundreds of years. Uh, Around about the middle of the 16th century, there were Huguenot riots uh, in, uh, in Paris and elsewhere as well. And, and they inflicted some slight damage on the cathedral, um, I think mostly on statues and aspects of the cathedral. It wasn't, it wasn't huge damage. Um, later on, at the end of the 18th century, of course, the French Revolution, uh, in its uh, feverish and livid fury at anything having to do with Judeo-Christian faith, Uh, did their best to uh, convert the cathedral into a sort of temple of reason and science. Anyway, they did some damage as well, but that uh, is about it. 
until this past week when the fire really did do some severe damage and uh, and it's it's it is sad i mean there's extraordinary things there that you'll never see again those of you who have been inside uh, the the cathedral as i have uh, will probably remember i know i was struck by the wooden beams they were pointed out and and to this day it sort of remains with me um you know when you see big huge wooden beams um not made out of lamination the way we we build wooden beams today where they might take uh uh, you know, like 20 uh, long pieces of half-inch wide wood, uh, half-inch thick wood, I should say, and then they're glued together in the right angle, and they make beautiful laminated beams for wide spans, and they're terrific. But that technology didn't exist uh, between 1150 and 1250 when the, when the uh, uh, cathedral was being built. And so they used an oak tree per beam, Every beam was made of one entire oak tree. These were huge pieces of wood. I want to say more than 12 inches by 12 inches, perhaps. Really, really substantial pieces of wood and long. Um, and, and they made up um, not only the, uh, the, 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 the framework holding up the roof, but also parts of the floor and other sections that are being held out. A lot of wood was used. And they say they they speak of fifty two acres of forest uh, were chopped down in order to provide enough timber uh, for the cathedral. Obviously, the walls are stone. I think they're sandstone, and uh, the stained glass is is remarkable. So it is it is quite a, a, an amazing thing. I mean, it was so ahead of its time that. It remained the highest building, the tallest building in Paris, I think until the Eiffel Tower was built. And so, I mean, all those years, nothing came even close to to what an extraordinary piece of work this was. And it was, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. And um, I've compared it, and I I mean, it's, you know, this is just my opinion, but uh, I've compared it in complexity and in uh, mag- magnificence of achievement uh, to the moon landing of 1969 that took the labor of thousands of Americans and the tax money of many, many, many more. And in that way, also building this uh, in the 12th century was also a huge undertaking. The scientific and technological achievement of the time, you know, imagine how heavy a, a long piece of 12 by 12 oak is, right? Hundreds and hundreds of pounds. It's huge. And those have to be hoisted up into the air, uh, a couple of hundred feet up in the air, placed in position, fitted against one another to meet in a V configuration at the apex. And all of that, no electrical power, no steam power, no hydraulic power, just ropes and, uh, and wheels, and levers and sweat and blood i mean that's that's how it was done and then this thing is so strong that they rest a roof on it of it of 200 tons of lead sit on top of that framework it's all really rather remarkable uh, and of course you just think about it you're putting a lot of weight on a v shape uh, an upside down v of of uh, timbers on the roof well that tends to force the bottoms of the wood outwards and each bottom is resting on an opposite wall so that would quite quickly collapse a uh, a tall thin wall particularly since they didn't want any cross beams to tie it all together they wanted an uninterrupted view all the way up to the roof how was this solved well, they came up with buttresses and flying buttresses, which were not just architectural uh, flourishes, but they're literally things that hold the wall up. And the whole thing is, is really quite remarkable. And, uh, and of course, the, uh, the, the severe damage it took was, uh, was sad, disappointing. But there are also untold aspects to that story. Uh, one of the untold aspects of the story. Well, one untold aspect of the story, 
I mean, I, I want to say underreported, but non-reported would make uh, more sense and be more accurate. And that is that uh, France alone, not counting Germany, not counting Sweden and Norway, not counting Holland and Denmark, uh, France alone sustains about 10 acts of vandalism, attacks and destruction against Christian churches every week. Do you hear that? Every week. Um, there have been more than 2,000 attacks on churches um, since the uh, beginning of um, uh, since the beginning of 2018. Huge numbers of attacks. Now, what gets very underreported, and you've, you've really got to dig into the news reports to see that, uh, almost without exception, these attacks are all Muslims. These are all Middle East, North African immigrants. And, uh, and what's also interesting is the length to which the French news reports go uh, in order to try and obscure the uh, national or religious origins of the people who did this. Now, you might remember in uh, January 2015, there was a Muslim attack in Paris. Uh, you'll remember the Charlie Hebdo attacks. You'll remember an attack against a Jewish kosher grocery store. And uh, at the time, President Obama came in for some well-earned criticism for refusing to acknowledge that they were Muslim attackers and for refusing to acknowledge that the targeting uh, was against Jews, in spite of the fact that the culprit himself announced over the telephone to police and to reporters that the attack was specifically against Jews. Uh, in spite of being explicitly questioned, President Obama would not have any of that. He wasn't, it was all random. Everything was random and criminal, and that's all there was to it. Uh, the same goes today. There is absolutely uh, an impenetrable wall when it comes to discussing facts. Now, when the, uh, when the uh, Notre Dame Cathedral went up in flames on Monday night, uh, the unspoken thought in everybody's mind was, hey, it's only a few weeks since another Notre Dame in Paris, in the city of Nimes, was attacked again by, uh, in this case, by Muslims, and uh, and severely damaged people. Everybody was thinking, thinking to themselves, surely, you know, was this also anything deliberate? Now, you know, why? Well, first of all, because of the huge number of Muslim attacks, uh, vandalizing churches, and uh, attacking people. You might remember uh, the uh, French. A priest was um, stabbed and almost beheaded in uh, the um, town of, I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment, uh, by two young Muslim attackers. So, I mean, why? what's going on here? Well, in a way that uh, is, is alien to, I think, certainly Judaism and Christianity today, uh, Islam to the present time still believes in the absolute religious necessity of destroying the places of worship of any other faiths. It's, it's like a really important thing to them. Uh, one need only go back to uh, the invasion of the Iberian Peninsula in the 700s uh, to discover that one of the first things they did was... Uh, come to churches, Catholic churches, kill the clergy, and then remove the crosses and replace them with Muslim symbols. In other words, converting a, a Christian place of worship into a Muslim place of worship is not one of the things you do during your military attack. It's the whole reason for doing the military attack in the first place. <laughs> that's, that's how it works. By the way, in this context, I mean, for people who really want to get a deeper understanding of all this, uh, there's a book called The Sword and the Scimitar by a man called Ibrahim, a Muslim gentleman, uh, with an excellent foreword uh, by Victor Davis Hansen. And, uh, and uh, you can delve into this more deeply if you wish. But uh, as I say, the untold story is, yes, a church severely damaged in Paris this week, uh, the untold story is thousands of churches in France, Germany, 
uh, Holland, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, uh, thousands and thousands of churches severely vandalized, uh, church leaders injured and often killed. In almost every instance, it's a Muslim attack. By the way, again, uh, the Euro, the French and other Europeans, many of the journalists have tried to suggest, oh, these are just secular people who don't like any places of worship. Well, actually, no, they are Muslims who don't like Christian or Jewish places of worship. Can't we talk about the truth? It's so interesting how uh, unhesitating the, the left is about naming right-wing people. Oh, they're so quick to identify. Oh, the person who attacked the church in New Zealand, he was a right-winger. Populists, nationalists, oh, these are all very bad people. And we are in no hesitation whatsoever. We undergo no reluctance to let people know right away, those are the culprits, those are the perpetrators. But if it's a Muslim perpetrator, the left and the media will not touch it. They will perform mental cartwheels to obscure the identity and racial or religious background of the perpetrators. Now, that is the real story about church burning and church destruction in Europe. Maybe before uh, continuing on with a uh, yet another untold story about the burning of Notre Dame Cathedral, and I should remind you of the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. And um, one of the things that's particularly interesting, I think particularly this week, is that the, you know, all of our columns that we mail out to you are also posted on the website. And one of the weekly columns is is one of my favorites. Well, I like them all. Uh, it's called Ask the Rabbi. And on this one, uh, we select the most interesting questions we got that week, and we answer one question each time, and we answer it fairly comprehensively. Um, this most recent question, and you'll see it at rabbidaniellappin.com if you just click to the Ask the Rabbi page, uh, one, one, that question we dealt with was a woman who was very upset that her adult daughter had uh, declared herself to be a lesbian and uh, uh, her reactions, and we responded to it. During the response, we explained <clears throat> that from a biblical perspective, there isn't really such a thing as female homosexuality. Homosexuality in the Bible is strictly male. And when I said the Bible, I meant the Hebrew Bible, just because that's what I know. As far as I know, it might also be the uh, New Testament as well. I just am not sure about that. And so I said that, um, uh, and I left it at that. Several people in the comments section, several people wrote in and said, uh, hey, uh, what do you mean by saying that uh, male uh, men with men is quite different than women with women? Uh, from a biblical point of view. And so I decided to give a very full explanation of uh, why specifically uh, the uh, unmentionable and ugly act that men perform with men uh, is entirely and utterly different from uh, whatever it is that women do with women, and that it um, involves, that involves zero penetration, and the uh, the biblical prohibition is very explicitly um, the action that men perform. So uh, I explained that, and as you can imagine, I've had quite a lot of protest about it, but I feel that um, I retain uh, the right to express uh, my belief and my views and other people have a right to theirs. And uh, I said, all I pray is that uh, my rights to express these views, regardless of how offensive others may find them, uh, should never be abrogated, and that constitutional right should always be a part of American culture. I hope and pray. 
At any rate, all of that um, controversy can be seen at rabbidaniellappin.com. I should also mention that we uh, do an annual Passover sale of what we call our library packs. And these are uh, this is a fabulous thing. It's the it's it's essentially everything we produce, everything we've created, every resource imaginable is there for a once a year special price. So um, be aware of it because it's only on for the four days during Passover that our store is open. Um, during the actual uh, worship days of the Passover holiday, in this case, this year Saturday and Sunday, the store is shut. Um, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it is open, and that is something you should be aware of. It's the library pack, and it's at rabbidaniellappin.com. Okay, so um, now I want to go back to another untold story having to do with the sad uh, damage inflicted by fire on the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Um one of the things that religion gives people is a very long memory. And so we know, for instance, that uh, the Muslims that attacked the World Trade Center and the Pentagon on 9-11 chose that date of September the 11th because it was the date on which the Muslims were vanquished at the gates of Vienna. The entire Ottoman army was finally wiped out by a Christian army led by the Poles. Yes, those brave Poles who uh, even now are standing against the hegemony and uh, dangerous policies of the European Union. At any rate, on the se- September the 11th, uh, 1683, the Ottoman siege of Vienna was listed, lifted by the uh, uh, by a successful uh, destruction of the Ottoman army, and uh, I have no doubt whatsoever that the date for the attacks was chosen to be September the 11th. Yes, religion gives people a long memory. It hel- it helps you know where you come from. The past is much more important to people of religious belief in general than people without. It's one of the reasons that family histories are very often inscribed in the back of the family Bible. Uh, Names of uh, every time a child is born is put into the family tree. Uh, That idea that biblical faith, in fact all faiths, link you to the past is unmistakable and and I think something everybody knows. So uh, that being the case, um, it is fairly well known that in the year 1242, um, a huge number of sacred Jewish volumes were burned. Uh, As a matter of fact, several dozen cartloads, imagine over 20 cartloads, piled high with Jewish manuscripts, all burned in a massive bonfire, Um, across the plaza from the uh, newly built Notre Dame Cathedral. Uh, Remember also, if you will, that the printing press hadn't been invented yet in 1242. And so this is a huge tragedy. I mean, when the, this is like the entire cultural uh, library of the uh, French part of the European Jewish community of the 13th century, destroyed in one huge uh, two-day conflagration. And uh, how did this come to be? Well, it came to be because um, there was established a debate between representatives of the church, of uh, the Catholic Church, and a group of rabbis led by a very uh, distinctive and and special rabbi by the name of Rabbi Meyer Meyer of Rothenburg, Rothenburg, a town in Germany. But uh, at that time, obviously, the the national borders weren't where we know them to be. Um, 
Rabbi Rothenberg's grave to this day is can be seen in a Jewish cemetery which still exists in the town of Worms, which used to be part of France. Now it's now Germany. It's located between um, sort of uh, it's for those of you who know Germany, it's it's sort of between um, Frankfurt and Heidelberg. Um, near a town called Mannheim. It's a little town, well, it's not so little anymore, but uh, Worms, W-O-R, I'm not pronouncing it correctly, Worms. But um, it's in the town of Worms that he's buried. And interestingly enough, he's uh, buried right next to a guy called Alexander Ben Solomon Wimfen. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that it was not uncommon um, for uh, Jews to be kidnapped and held for ransom. People apparently knew that there is a biblical obligation on Jews to ransom fellow Jews. And so uh, they knew that if they kidnapped a Jew, particularly if he was a prominent Jew, they could always count on the community raising the funds to free him. So they captured uh, Rabbi Meir of Rothenburg, <clears throat> And uh, they announced a huge ransom for his release. And from prison, Rabbi Meir issued a Jewish um, ruling uh, that he was not to be ransomed. The reason was he felt that um, if he was ransomed, it would launch an epidemic of more kidnappings. And um, and this, ladies and gentlemen, is how a true leader behaves. And um, he uh, was stuck in prison for another seven years, uh, whereupon he died there. Uh, it took another 14 years for the authorities to allow his release. The ransom was then paid for his body. And the, the ransom was mostly raised by a Jew called Alexander, the son of Solomon Wimfen. And, um, and he arranged for him to be buried, for Rabbi Meir of Rothenburg to be married, buried in the town of Worms in the Jewish cemetery there. As I say, you can still see his, his grave there. But what's interesting is that this guy who paid the ransom to release his body for burial, uh, this Alexander ben Salomon Wimfen, he's actually buried right next to Rabbi Meir of Rothenburg. And you see these two graves to this day together. Uh, all of this goes back to, uh, uh, he died in 1293. So, I mean, talk about a long memory. Uh, but many, many Jews, and I have you know friends and colleagues where, where we discuss this sort of thing. And I'm quite sure somebody listening to us talking about these things would think we were talking about events that took place, you know, at the longest, maybe in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, but, you know, they'd be shocked to know discussing matters that go back to the middle of the 13th century. Also, you know, as if it was quite contemporary. Anyways, I tell you all of that because uh, I wanted to tell you about uh, Rabbi Meir of Rothenburg. He was one of the people who had to represent the side of Judaism against uh, Catholicism. And this sort of thing used to happen fairly often. Uh, they basically termed it a trial of Judaism. And what this was all about was that at that point in the Catholic Church, uh, there was something that was back then very important, and it was a doctrine called Verus Israel, uh, which means that uh, the, the Hebrew people, the people of Israel, are fallen and, and gone, and they've been replaced by the new Israel, which is uh, the church. This, is, this was a big, big deal back then. Times had changed, but it was a big deal back then. And so this thing was reenacted you know, every now and then by holding a huge public trial in which uh, two rabbis would debate two priests. And of course, the, the conclusion was foregone. And uh, as, um, uh, as the consequence of the so-called defeat of Rabbi Meir of Rothenburg and his rabbinic colleague by the two priests, uh, all a decree was made that all the Jewish holy manuscripts would be burned, and Rabbi Meir of Rothenburg witnessed the this huge, huge. I mean, it was a, a massive thing. I 
I can't even imagine anything that could be comparable or seen as comparable today. You know, we're not talking about a... Do you remember when the uh, Taliban destroyed some old historic uh, religious statues um, in Afghanistan? Or was it, or may, might have been, was it perhaps in Iraq? I'm, I don't remember. But it was a huge, I mean, the, the cultural elite of the world went crazy and went berserk. And that was, you know, that was a symbolic thing. But here, to destroy every single volume they could lay their hands on meant that this setback scholarship, which may have been part of the idea, 20, over 20 cartloads, wagon loads of uh, Hebrew manuscripts. It was a massive thing. And so um, the, this, this, whole, this whole episode, by the way, is characterized, and this was not damaged. You can actually still see it on the outside of, uh, of the Notre Dame Cathedral. Uh, you'll see an amazing um, pair of statues. And uh, one, there are two women um facing each other one of them is wearing a, a crown and and looks triumphant and the other woman is bowed and blindfolded and she's sort of uh, clutching in her hands the, the the tablets of moses and they're sort of drooping down and looking as if they're about to fall into the dust and um these these two ladies are entitled ecclesia right the uh the, the ecclesiastical, the church, and the other one is labeled the synagogue, uh, which means the synagogue, and it represents this uh, struggle between the church and the synagogue, which was, as I say, a big deal back then, and uh, and the as as part of the sort of unveiling of the statue and and this whole everything that was going on at the period, they had this uh, debate or this trial. Uh, between the two clerics arguing for the church and the two rabbis arguing for the Torah and um, and resulting in the burning of the Torah. Anyways, one of them is Rabbi Mayer of Rothenburg, and uh, he then writes a, a dirge. And this dirge is one of, I don't know, maybe about a hundred, roughly speaking, maybe 80, uh, that are recited by Jews um, on the saddest day of the Jewish calendar, which is the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av, and it's it's usually it usually occurs sometime in July. It's early summer, and uh, all of these dirges are are uh, are read, and they're written by a number of different authors. But as far as I remember, only one of them is written by Rabbi Meir of Rothenburg. And here's the interesting thing: it was written specifically in reaction to his witnessing the burning of these Jewish manuscripts on the 17th of June in the year 1242. And uh, look, um, this this is all mysterious prophetic stuff. Uh, Rabbi Meir of Rothenberg, you know, was not you or me. Uh, he was a, a huge personality. He was a, a giant of moral self-discipline. Uh, as I described to you, which of us would have had the, the, the courage to say, do not ransom me, leave me here to die, which is exactly what happened. Anyways, um, he goes ahead and writes this dirge about the burning of the texts and i mean it's like really really uh, heavy stuff um it opens up with the words sha'ali srufa ba'esh lishlom avelaich um we're all mourning about the burnt volumes that were were consumed by fire and then it it carries on and goes on and then it it, he addresses God and says, Od Tigzari, did you really decree that um, our books, our religious books, and our legal, Jewish legal volumes should be burnt? Well, if that's so, 
Let us take comfort, he writes, Lachen Ashrei Sheyeshalem Lachagmulaich. Let us therefore take comfort that you, O God, always pay your debts, O our rock. And you pay them with flame and fire. And here's where it gets um, uh, really eerie. He says, and I tell you that your end, and now he's, he's now not talking to God anymore. He's addressing himself to who? Those who burnt the volumes? And I tell you that your end will be burning fire in your own places. A prophecy to the fire that inflicted so much damage on the Notre Dame Cathedral, in front of which more than 20 wagon loads of Jewish manuscripts were burned back in 1242? I don't know. Sounds like it. And, you know, I've told you in the past that there are Jewish texts written uh, in the 17, 1800s, 1900s that lay out in terrifying detail the Nazi Holocaust against the Jews and additionally add on the unthinkable founding of the state of Israel in the aftermath of that destruction. Um, friends, there are strange, strange things in this world. You know that uh, I have been an engineer. I, uh, I am comfortable in the world of physics and chemistry and mathematics. Um, I, I'm just, <laughs> I, just, I, I just want to let you know that we live in a world of physical reality and spiritual reality. And things that belong in the world of spiritual reality can be explained by science. Things that belong in the world of spiritual reality cannot. And um, something like this, I don't know. It, uh, there it is. And uh, uh, it's interesting. Again, one of the untold stories of the Notre Dame Cathedral fire. So uh, the, the actual news about the burning of Notre Dame Cathedral. Well, you're up on that. You can access it yourself. What I'm more interested in today uh, are the hidden stories, the, the unreported aspects of it. And so, as I say, one of them is perhaps a curse uh, that goes back to the middle of the 13th century. Who knows? Uh, I'm not being fanciful. I'm also not being coy. Uh, I'm, I'm just telling you what I do know. The rest is, is conjecture or wonder. Uh, as far as the, the Muslim attacks, look, that's, that's big news. In 2017, there were 878 attacks that the police explored, all perpetrated by Muslims uh, against Christian churches in France alone. Uh, in 2018, that number went up to 1,063. I mean, this is, this is very real. Um, they uh, plundered Notre Dame Church in Nîmes, and they used human excrement to draw a cross. Consecrated bread was found thrown outside among the garbage. Um, the uh, I mean, one after the other. Uh, arsonists torched the Church of Saint Sulpice in Paris after midday on March seventeenth. Um, in Germany, the same sort of things come out. Uh, in all the cases. Um, these are specific violations of the uh, the cross, the altars, and uh, very often words like Allahu Akbar are uh, are painted on the doors. Um, and when the people are caught, their names are always Muslim. Uh, <laughs> this is inescapable. I'm sorry. I mean, what do you want me to say? Ninety nine percent, not all cases. Ninety. I don't know. It seems to be all the cases. I'm sorry. Uh, it's this is this is a reality, and um, 
And we, we get nowhere by burying our heads in the sands like uh, uh, sad ostriches. Um, in uh, Once uh, another million MENA immigrants arrived in Germany in 2016, uh, they, the German police noted a huge uptick in attacks on religious statues and churches uh, throughout Germany. Um, it's, it's really, really quite interesting. Here's something from a German news site. Hardly anyone writes or speaks about the increasing attacks on Christian symbols. Uh, there is an eloquent silence in both France and Germany about the scandal of church desecrations and the origin of the perpetrators. Uh, they do not want any suspicion of migrants. They speak of uh, the perpetrators uh, must not be ostracized. And if you dare to associate the desecration of ch Christian symbols with immigrants uh, of Muslim background, you are accused of hatred, hate speech, and racism. Uh, as I said more in uh, Raymond Ibrahim's book, The Sword and the Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West. Um, a very scholarly work and uh, filled with this kind of disturbing news. Um, I think it's probably time to also revisit uh, Boeing Aircraft uh, Company, don't you? Um, I'll tell you why it's interesting to look and see. Um, the stock price of Boeing, that's what's interesting here. Um, back in at the end of October, when the Indonesian three, uh, 737 MAX crashed into the ocean, um, the stock price took a slight drop. Um, in March, March 11th, when the Ethiopian went down, it took a slightly bigger drop. However, the price of the stock now, the, 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 these drops were not significant. They were not sustained. The price quickly rallied. And the stock price now is still pretty much where it was before the Lion Air crash in October 2018. So it's as if the market is saying, no big deal. How can this happen? To some extent, the market is saying, hey, you know what? This is a big company. I'm not buying stock to sell in three weeks' time. Uh, I'm buying stock to hold. I, I invest on the Warren Buffett principle. And therefore, in, do I think that in five years and 10 years' time, Boeing Company will still successfully be making planes? Sure. And so uh, if the price does drop a little bit now, no problem. Good buying opportunity. Now, that some people are saying that is no, no question about it at all. But it doesn't seem to be quite enough for the amazing resilience of the stock, in spite of the fact that over the last couple of weeks, uh, things that I told you about uh, when I first started talking about Boeing uh, are now becoming clearer and clearer. You'll remember I told you that uh, the 737 will not be flying again, the 737 MAX will not be flying again as quickly as people are saying. It's going to be grounded not for weeks, but for months. And I even said back then that uh, it's uh, the likelihood of it, of it flying even in, by the summertime is not, I would not say is particularly good. Well, now this everybody's saying this. You really would have thought that the stock would take some sort of dive, that people would say, whoops, you know what? This is a big, a big deal. But uh, it's not doing that. Why? And I think the answer is partially, if not largely, testament to the swamp that we still hope Donald Trump is going to make serious headway on in his second term. Look, that's my belief. Uh, why? What's, what do I mean by that? Well, look, I told you about how the CEO of... Uh, of, of Boeing made his first call on March the 13th, just after the Ethiopian um, uh, crash. He made his first call to President Trump, and, uh, and I didn't at the time understand the full significance of that. 
But it turns out that the relationship between the government and the Boeing aircraft factory is so much closer than I had any idea of. It's truly quite mind-boggling. It really is. It's quite extraordinary. Um, so I, I, I finally, I learned um, that there is a woman, her name is Susan McCauley Benhoff, and um, she, she had some uh, connections with the state of Washington, where I know a lot of people, and it turns out that she was a counselor to the deputy secretary in the U.S. Department of Transportation, okay, uh, through 2004 and part of 2005. Okay, so what? A woman uh, worked as counselor to the deputy secretary. Yeah, that's right. But what we should also take note of is that earlier than that, prior to that, she was an employee of the Boeing Company. So, okay, this is really interesting. Are there, are there other people who have had dealings with the House Transportation um, Committee, of which a subsection, by the way, is aviation? Are there a lot of people who've had connections with that committee and the Boeing Airplane Company? And the answer is, oh, yes, very much so indeed. It's also true that uh, Boeing has paid numerous fines for falsifying paperwork having to do with government contracts and submitting fake claims for repayment reimbursement to the United States Air Force. Uh, we're talking about um, uh, in um, uh, December 2015, a fine of $12 million for uh, uh, doing something really bad, uh, falsifying uh, paperwork having to do with uh, uh, purchases. In October 2014, a $23 million fine for fake claims to the Air Force. Uh, look, there's a huge flow of contracts between the United States Air Force and Boeing. Uh, in June 2006, how do you like this little fine? $615 million. Okay, And a woman, Darlene Dryan, actually ends up um, spending nine months in jail. She was uh, an employee. Well, who was she? Well, she was a principal deputy undersecretary to the House Transportation Committee. <laughs> That's right. You got it. Um, and uh, she was in charge of acquisitions. She was a uh, Bill Clinton appointee. And um, it, it, as this got explored and exposed, she ended up serving nine months in jail. And at the time, the CEO of, of Boeing, Michael Scott Sears, had to, he was fired. And um, Phil Condit, the oh he was the CFO actually. Phil Condit, the CEO, resigned. And um, why? Well, because Darlene Dryan um, sort of moved like in a revolving door between government and Boeing. Uh, she got her daughter and her future son-in-law very highly paid uh, jobs at Boeing. She herself left government and signed on at Boeing in 2003 for um, $250,000 a year plus a $50,000 signing bonus. Um, look, this stuff is pretty amazing. I mean, it really is quite... Uh, I, I had no idea of the extent to which Boeing and the government were arm in arm. I had no extent of the amount of money. I had no idea of um, of just how much corruption there was, how much there was in the way of uh, um, uh, deals that were done, uh, that were contracts that were given to Boeing without proper bidding procedures. I mean, just I, 
it, it was mind-boggling as I began to explore some of this. Now, you know, look, um, there's there's no shortage of this stuff going around. I mean, right now, uh, the city of Baltimore is confronting the fact that uh, Catherine Pugh was the mayor. She resigned to take care of health care pneumonia. Look, let me make a little prediction. Mayor Catherine Pugh is not returning ever as the mayor of Baltimore. She's not uh, taking a leave of absence to nurse her pneumonia. Uh, She's taking a leave of absence to try and avoid prosecution for sheer bald-faced bribery. What's going on? Well, um, she uh, gave city contracts to certain large hospitals. And in exchange for that, the hospitals paid her. But wait a sec, you can't just pay me. That would be against the law. So she uh, came up with some silly little books called Healthy Holly, and um, she uh, essentially made a deal that the uh, University of Baltimore Health Center would buy huge numbers of this silly thing. As it turned out, they were not even actually delivered. This was just a subterfuge to avoid uh, direct appearance of bribery. And so and this was only one organization. There were many other organizations that were forced by the mayor to buy uh, huge numbers of her book to circulate to their patients or clients or whatever. Bottom line is that um, Mayor Pew managed to get uh, quite a lot. Look, this level of corruption you expect in Baltimore, right? I mean, it's not news. Um the city council is now wanting her to resign. She's saying nothing doing. Uh, and it's perfectly obvious. I mean, nobody's even disputing the facts. This woman, uh, bald-faced and unashamedly, insisted on being paid for giving city contracts to specific uh, organizations. Okay, it's no big shock in Baltimore. But for the Boeing Aircraft Company, yeah, there I'm afraid we have a problem. And so uh, I think what we're seeing is that a company that over a period of a few years spends $274 million on lobbying, that's $274 million paid to um, former members of Congress who leave Congress to go into the lobbying business, that's a quarter of a billion dollars. Um. Look, in 2017, I discovered, by the way, this is, I mean, when I say I discovered, I'm not exactly being Woodward and Bernstein here. This is, I mean, it's uh, two minutes on the internet and the documents all pop up in PDF form. Uh, In 2017 alone, um, Boeing got $29 billion from government contracts. So for them to feed back a few hundred million in the form of bribes to to governmental people, in the form of jobs and and uh, all kinds of beautiful treatment that you and I wish we could get, um, that's pretty good. So I think to some extent the market is saying, you know what, this stuff's not going away. Uh, $29 billion in one year alone only from Air Force contracts, and that in itself is more than 30% of revenues for Boeing in 2017, and that's going to continue, and the the, uh, the 737 MAX calamity is going to be sorted out, and in a year or two it'll be forgiven and forgotten, or forgotten and forgiven. That's what the market is really saying here. In the, in the longer term, this is absolutely nothing. And it, it turns out that there really is quite a revolving door between the House uh, Department, the House um, uh, House Committee on, on Transportation, the Subcommittee on, on uh, uh, Airplanes and Aviation, and the Boeing Company, people just moving backwards and forwards. Uh, Patrick Shanahan, who is now a high-ranking official in the Trump administration, came there, and I told you about him already, 30 years, back, uh, 30 years employment at Boeing. <laughs> it's it's really quite amazing. How about Thomas McSweeney? I didn't know about this one until very recently. Um, he had uh, a thirty-year contract as thirty-year uh, uh, career 
as chief of regulation and certification at the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. He was the guy for many, many years. Um, he was in charge of regulation and certification of airplanes. And in 2007, he left government. Guess where he got a job? Boeing. That's right. Um, Nikki Haley, the great, wonderful Nikki Haley. And she was, she is, she's terrific. And she's quitting. Uh, is it in any way connected to the fact that she's now on the board of directors of the Boeing aircraft company? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not an investigative journalist or anything. Uh, I'm simply reminding you that uh, the way the world really works is that it is important to follow the money. That gives you a lot of insight into what is going on. And that is true for the Boeing airplane company as well, which is why I began by being puzzled at how it was that the stock price was not showing the any consternation on the part of the market regarding the huge and unanticipated problems. I mean, the 737s are piling up. They've got the factory churning them out. They don't want to shut down the assembly line. Uh, deliveries cannot be made, so airlines aren't accepting them. So they're piling up on the airfield at Renton. You can actually see airplanes. You can see uh, air, air, uh, air, air photographs uh, of this. This is surely bad news. Well, not really, because uh, the government isn't going to fail. Therefore, the Boeing aircraft companies, you don't have to worry. In the long, it'll all be fine eventually, because you ordinary citizens, you don't need to know the details. In fact, it's better you don't. But uh, yeah, the government and Boeing, pretty close, pretty hand in hand. So if uh, the president indeed is going to proceed to dismantle the swamp. And I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful because this is a guy who's done fantastic things since he's, to me, and obviously many people hate the very air he breathes, but um, uh, this is a man who partially has been able to achieve what he's been able to achieve because he cares so little for being unpopular. Uh, fortunately, he seems to be blessed with the rhinoceros hide, and without that, look, I mean, to to open your paper every day and see the vilification, and to see, never mind, you remember, uh, there used to be Bush derangement syndrome as well, didn't there? Uh, they used to hate Bush. There was nothing compared to their hatred of, of Trump right now, and yet, apparently, he laughs it off, doesn't worry him in the least. Uh, only that attitude will see him through uh, everything that still lies ahead. And so, um, folks, I think that um, uh, it's time for me to once again remind you that the website is rabbidaniellappin.com. What you may not have heard me say earlier is that the Passover holiday is uh, uh, coming up very soon. It is, in fact, starting on Friday night, uh, the 19th of April, 2019. And uh, for the next two days, that's Saturday and Sunday, the store, the e-commerce side of my website, the shop, will not be open in honor of the Jewish holidays they'll be closed in honor of that biblical festival of passover but the store will open again on monday tuesday wednesday and thursday during which time the special passover sale is uh, going to be taking place where you'll be able to get the famous library pack at an unprecedented price for listeners of this show uh, take a look then will you at rabbi daniel com is the website and uh uh, explore around. There, there really are some very interesting things on the website this week, particularly, as I mentioned, in the Ask the Rabbi column, where in the comment section, I deal with the question of why it is that what women do with women is nothing to do with what men do with men in the sexual arena from a biblical perspective. Um, 
I decided to explain that solidly, and uh, I did that explicitly and very, very honestly and very candidly. And um, it's uh, probably not for very young eyes, but for anybody else. And I, I, I'd say anybody over the age of, to be honest, this day and age, um, I have no compunction about explaining it to um, 15-year-olds. I have, I have no problem at all. Um, and, uh, and, and they're relieved to, I think, be treated maturely because they, they're pretty aware of all the stuff anyway. Uh, so at least to get a biblical perspective on it, a whole lot better. So if you are on the threshold of any potentially awkward conversations with your teenagers on some of these questions, you might want to go to rabbidaniellappin.com Go to the Ask the Rabbi section. Go to the latest Ask the Rabbi about a woman whose daughter came out as a, quote, homosexual. And in the uh, comments section after the article, uh, you will find the explanation, which I um, put there just recently. So all very good. Um, I was asked recently, uh, why is it that newspapers are so much on the left wouldn't you have thought that with roughly speaking roughly speaking 50 percent of america identifying as conservative and roughly 50 percent of america identifying as liberal wouldn't you have thought that uh, hey like about half the newspapers should be liberal half the newspapers should be conservative and even when you have a conservative newspaper owner like rupert murdoch who owns the wall street journal uh, not to mention Fox News, he has trouble hiring non-liberal uh, journalists. Very hard. What's going on? Uh, look, the answer is, partially, if not largely, the answer is that journalism in general is a uh, an activity, a profession, that um, appeals more to liberals than it does to conservatives. I'll tell you why. Because it's an activity where you don't actually do anything. You report on things that other people do. And what happens is that this inevitably generates a subtle sense of psychological resentment. And if liberalism as a doctrine is anything, it is the, a doctrine of envy and resentment. Uh, conservatism, generally a doctrine of gratitude, appreciation. No, we don't need another revolution. We're not trying to rush to change things. Um, let's, let's preserve everything that is good and, and beautiful about life right now. We don't constantly need to be at war with the status quo. That is liberalism. And so um, journalists are hired uh, from graduates of journalism schools, and journalism schools are taught by professors of journalism. And, um, and there is a lot of resentment in the profession of journalism. Why? Well, for one thing, journalists think of themselves in very lofty terms. They think of themselves as guardians of democracy. And sure enough, uh, among, among the founders of the United States were those who, who believed and said that a, a safe and secure democracy depends on a strong free press that can uh, identify uh, wrongdoing among the powerful. Yeah, all right. So they tend to think of themselves as an estate, as it were. Uh, as a class, a unique and special class in society, journalism. They are an elite. They are the opinion makers. They are the thought generators of society. Um, they all feel that they're underpaid. Well, I mean, we all do in one sense, of course, but, um, but uh, journalists particularly, feeling themselves protectors of democracy, uh, the guardians of, of society, they feel they should deserve greater recognition. Um, and in addition to that, the profession itself, as I've said, uh, you, you're not actually building anything, you're not achieving, you, you know, you get your occasional scoop, 
And even that usually involves bringing someone else down. Even the most famous of all journalists, Woodward and Bernstein, uh, Watergate, bringing down President Nixon. But um, what have you built up, actually? Well, you don't do a whole lot of that in journalism. And uh, all of that combined, I think, tends to make it very difficult indeed to find conservative journalists. And of course, uh, because the um, the newspaper editors are all very, very left, they're not likely to even hire the occasional rare conservative journalist. Um, and so I think these are some of the factors that uh, have an impact on why it is that it is so difficult to to find mainstream media that is not so far to the left. Uh, to such an extent that I think that for the foreseeable future, maybe for a generation or more, uh, the reputation of media is ruined. The idea of an objective news media, gone. It's history. Uh, President Trump didn't do it. They did it to themselves. He just pointed out the, 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 the truth of it. And uh, I think it's something that more and more Americans are coming to see, that uh, news media are part of the political left. They are one big army marching in lockstep with clear eyes focused on the same vision. So uh, that is pretty much where we're at, my dear friends. Uh, Not to end in any way on a, a negative note. No, hardly, not at all. I think only that uh, I will wish our Jewish um, listeners a Chag uh, Sameach, a, a wonderful festival of Pesach, of Passover. And Christian listeners, of course, you've got Easter coming up. So may that one be a, a joyful one for you all and uh, a time of uh, spiritual and material uplift. Thanks for visiting the website at rabbidaniellappin.com. Be aware that uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, special annual Passover sale on the library pack. A great opportunity and certainly one I would love you to take advantage of. It will bless both you and me. Uh, So until we are together again, I wish you a week of good times with your family, with your faith, with your friends, and also with your finances. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Thanks for listening. God bless.